So in uh, Le Massif, the only contractor that was crazy enough to do the green trail all the way to the bottom through the boulder field and, and all the crap that was at the base of the mountain, well, it was us. <laughs> and it was quite intense. We even had to heliport dirt to finish the tread because there was just nothing at all. Uh, so we've carried with the chopper over 200 ton of dirt. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 116 features Jerome Pallon, the owner of Sentier Boreal, based out of the province of Quebec, Canada. Jerome's company has a ton of experience in the world of trail building and has built in several countries, along with helping propel Quebec into the destination that it is for mountain biking. A supporter of this podcast is Kettle Mountain Apparel, a brand run by mountain bikers, hikers, trail runners, and travelers who believe the world needs more exceptionally designed and crafted apparel that is also really versatile. Kettle Mountain offers a lifetime guarantee on everything and is focused on creating apparel that can do more and last you a lifetime as they'll repair it forever. Shop Kettle Mountain Apparel using kettlemountain.com backslash Josh, and you will not only be getting yourself some of the best clothing on the planet, you will also be supporting the Trail Effect podcast with your purchase. You can also find the link in the show notes. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect with Jerome Pallon. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Jerome Pallon, and he owns a company named Santier Boreal, which is huge in the trail building industry. And Jerome is also a board member of the PTBA, otherwise known known as the uh, Professional Trail Builders Association, which I think most listeners of this podcast know what the PTBA is, but there's some I'm sure that don't know what it is. But you are also a provincial director of IMBA Canada before starting your company, correct? Yeah, I used to work for IMBA for a while, uh, for eight years, and also founded the co-founded the Provincial Trail Association. Well, let's get into kind of your backstory and how you how you came into the world of trails. Like what, what caught your interest with trails to even make this A, as a career, but B, found a company as successful as yours? I actually grew up uh, in the forest, in the wood, and the shortest way to get to school was through the trails in the wood, not by the road. So um, when I was a teen, uh, I used to take my bike to get to school through the quad trails at the time, mid-90s, early 90s. And uh, I developed a patient uh, at the time of there. Turned out at the end of the 90s, around 97, I got my first real mountain bike, got more into it, got involved with a small hill nearby where I started volunteering and building trails. We hosted a couple of Quebec Cops and events at the time. I grew that 
moved to Montreal for studies. And we realized at the time that Embark Canada did not have the capacity to get involved in the French-speaking side of the country. Uh, so we founded our own trial association at the time, so early 2000, something like that, uh, with a couple of friends. Grew that to over 5,000 members. Uh, I used to be president of that for a while. At the same time, I used to be director of the Imba chapter in Quebec. Uh, we got quite involved in terms of small nonprofit. And at some point, we even translated the Imba books in French. Uh, we had a trail crew that I led for a while. And with time, renting equipment and uh, insurance became too much of a burden for a small nonprofit. So in 2010, I started my own business and then Sensei Boreal. With that, you also quickly became, I think you quickly became a member of the Professional Trail Builders Association. What kind of piqued your interest with going that route? The main issue at the time, it's a bit different today, but at the time, getting training to become a trail professional was non-existent. Uh, you had a couple books here and there, mostly around volunteer work or really specific items, but nothing around growing that into a business or growing that into something else. Uh, so they only approach to turn pro and get training was to join the PTBA. Uh, so I joined in uh, 2011 and I, I, I used to think that I was good beyond price at the time. When I joined, I've learned the definition of the word humility. The day you join, you realize that, well, <laughs> you're totally green, you know, way less than you think. I got to meet uh, Woody Keane and a couple of guys like that at the time. Uh, Richard uh, was there. They have a, a, a knowledge to share that was just insane. So I spent quite a bit of time traveling in the States uh, just to meet up with those guys, learn from them, uh, refine trade a bit, bring that back in our own context. So we had to innovate a lot, improvise, learn. The, the culture of innovation is really strong with us because we we have a different context, different regulation, different kind of soil and forest, and we have a lot more water to deal with than most states. So we, we develop our own way of building trails uh, up north. And over time, that became a knowledge base, but we've turned that into our own expertise also. You mentioned that you went to university. So what was your, what did you originally go to university for? Or am I wrong there? Uh, actually, no, did not went to university. I moved in Quebec to a primary school, high school, then uh, college and university. So I started graphic design in college, dropped out of a couple semester and worked in IT for 10 years. So I used to be an IT consultant uh, for a while, for 10 years in Montreal, uh, worked with various Fortune 500 uh, companies at the time, uh, specialized in virtualization and business continuity. So IT full on, uh, I've worked in really advanced stuff, spent my days and nights pushing on buttons and around concrete. So I belong outside. Uh, I had to get back outside with the forest, with the nature, and uh, I lost that connection. So moving out of that world, and starting my own business instead made quite a big change. So technically, I just have my high school degree. 
the key is getting the right people around you in that case. While you were doing the IT stuff, I'm assuming you were also juggling the uh, Imba Canada stuff and your local trail organization stuff, and that you didn't just quit the IT cold turkey and then decide that you're going to start your company. I'm assuming there is some overlap and a lot of grinding and bootstrapping. Yeah. So the last three years before leaving the IT world, I used to take my old summer off the IT world and spend my summer in, in the field with the crew building trails under the nonprofit, uh, the Trail Association. So we, we built a bunch of trails and many of them are still in use. And that's also where I've developed quite a few relationships with a bunch of clients all over the place. At the time, I was the first provincial trail contractor in, the, in Quebec. So nobody else offered that kind of service or really specialized trail-oriented service. Uh, so I was the first one. And when I started, there was probably over 100 destinations in the province. Right now, it's totally different. Um, there was about a thousand kilometer trail or official trail across the province. We've more than credible that in the last decade. So that's quite a bit. Uh, my crew built about a thousand kilometers out of the over 3,500 kilometer single track that there's across the, the province. So in three summers, I've learned to run equipment, run a business, uh, drive a truck up fairly steep dirt road where you should not go. They, uh, well, I've grew up with chainsaws and, and tools, but working with them 12 hours a day is something else. So learning the trail, raking behind your own equipment, your own dirt work, it's not the same thing as pulling up some, someone else. I've learned the hard way. So I spent quite a fair bit of time in the field also. Well, let's move on to since joining the PTBA. And you, so you've been a member of the PTBA for over, over 10 years now. And then you're also a, a PTBA board member. What have you seen in terms of the evolution of the trail building industry since you came into it? Because I think it's been a pretty rapidly advancing and evolving industry. Yes. Um, when I joined, I think the, the largest company at the time had like 15 or 20 employees at most. These days, you have a couple guys like Percy Trail Design, Rock Solid Contracting, a couple larger business that employ over 50 employees, up to 70, uh, even more. When I joined, we were two in, in, in my crew. Now we're 26 uh, full-time. So totally different approach. So the, the, the average size of uh, the business grew up quite a bit. The size of contract grew up expansionally. The kind of work that we do is not the same anymore. So the typical old school single track, almost rake and ride, so large volume of trails turn more into really finish and buff trail and a lot more landscaping done around. The finished product is more targeted toward the user experience, not just pure volume of trails. So because of that, the, there's a certain specialization of how we do it. The skill set evolved quite a bit. The type of rider evolved also. So there's a lot of stuff that changed over the last few years. And because of that, there's also more specialized work. So the planning process 
is way more in-depth than before. The construction approach is not the same. So there's rock work, but it's not just about putting four or five boulders together. It's about building a full-blown castle as a trail hub, or it's about uh, building a, a bridge, but with a metal frame that is tied into a rock face that was planned with photogrammetry and 3D rendering of how it should be modeled. So the, the level of detail is insane compared to what we used to do. Uh, the price went up quite a bit, but products are not the same. The impact beyond that is that you end up with trails that are way more accessible. The user base is much wider. Instead of being just for the core rider, the range of trail is much wider between the really beginner riders, so the initiation side, the family side, all the way to the core and even pro-level rider. So we kept the same technical trail that used to be cool, but we added more flow trail around that, jump trails, enduro trails. Uh, so the, the range expanded a lot. And that's, that came through professionalization of the industry also. So what do you prefer to use for as a trail user and a rider? Do you prefer the newer, more manicured flow trail or do you prefer the old school Rocky Tech Trail? If I go for a ride with my kids, I'd rather go with a flow trail. So something where the whole family can have fun. If I go for a ride with my friends, we'll probably go more into technical stuff. So depend where I'm going, what kind of riding we want to do that day, or if we want to do a long distance ride where we'll cover a lot of ground. The thing is, we have so much different kind of trails here. There's just no limit to what we can do. Yeah, I've heard that region described as like the Whistler of the East in terms of what you really have for trails up there. And it's, I know I've looked at it a lot on a map and I've watched a lot of videos and it's, it's quite impressive. Uh, Quebec always had a, a special place in the World Cup series, especially with Mont Saint-Anne. So a lot of listeners can actually, or probably heard about Quebec because of Saint-Anne, but that's just a World Cup. That's one thing. And that going to appeal to maybe less than 1% of the user base that we have. The, the point is, we have a lot of trail, a lot of different destinations that grew over time. Uh, near Quebec City appeal to uh, a lot of urban writers. So we have a lot of people that come from France and uh, all over the place just to write there. Uh, it's a pretty, it goes with Santé du Moulin, Le 47, Le Massif. So all those around Quebec City became an, uh, form an alliance uh, altogether and approached the uh, tourist ministry, which actually recognize mountain bike as one of the three key driver for tourism around the, the capital. So there's a recognition now. And because of that, we have access to a lot more funding than we used to. So the project grew up, the trail quality went up, the amount of rider went up because where we have more trails. Uh, we can see kids three, four, five years old now in the trails that are actually targeted for them. And the same trail can be used by the parents that just ride all the features along the same trail. There's stuff where you can spend a full week 
without riding the same trail twice and within an hour drive. So we have a, a, a critical mass of trails enough to sustain a tourist approach and just not to have something that is more targeted toward the, toward the local riders. That's one thing. The other point is um, what used to be really race-centric, especially across Eastern Canada, the rider base change uh, in the last decade. So the race federation have way less members now, and the recreative riders took all of place and expanded a lot. Because of that destination that could not be sustainable 10 years ago, became really successful now. So you can go around the Gaspé Peninsula and there's dozen destinations now. Each one of those is small enough that it's probably not worth to drive just one. But if you do a road trip around the full peninsula, you can spend two weeks, ride every single day, take a couple hours, go kayaking or fishing uh, in the Atlantic Ocean or do something else and ride a new trail every single day. That's not something you can experience in, in a lot of places. So that kind of experience is something quite new also. Shifting back to your company and your staff, you know, we, we had a phone conversation a couple of days ago kind of a, as a precursor to this recorded conversation. But you were, you were going on about how your staff, most of which, or a lot of which, have pretty advanced degrees. And they're really... They take their work very seriously, you know, and so how do you, um, how has that been for you as a company and kind of the evolution of trail building? How has that been to work with like such professionals in terms of graphic design and GIS and all the things that you almost need to, need to have knowledge in to work in today's world? Um, when I started, you had to be able to do virtually everything by yourself. So you had to be a logger. Uh, you had to run a machine to do your own mechanic. Uh, you drove the truck. You did everything. And I used to do all the accounting between 9 and midnight and get back on the machine at 6 in the morning the next day. So it was a bit insane, especially with young kids at home. So moving from that, now we have a totally different approach. The, the crew is not the same. It, it grew quite a bit. So we have 26 employees. Well, we had 26 employees last year. We expect to be over 30 this year. Out of that 30-ish employees, we have a full-blown office that do all the planning and design work. So that's something we did not really add about up to three, four years ago. So design team is a bit more qualified and certified than the office, uh, than the field crew. In the field, we will have civil engineer, uh, forestry engineer, uh, loggers, certified machine operators, stuff like that. But in the office, it's not the same crowd. And because we aim to be one step in front of everybody else, we have a small team that is really highly qualified. So landscape architect, uh, doctorate in GIS, one guy is... Uh, also has a master in um, outdoor activities. My graphic designer has 22 years of experience doing brand management. Uh, we do strategic planning with a general director that does uh, that used to have our own communication agency. 
So the, the, the background is quite wide and really specialized. Uh, what we don't have internally, we outsource. So we have our own urbanist. Uh, we have access to uh, metal work, stuff like that. So the, the level of competency and qualification overall uh, that we bring to the table is quite high. We keep pushing that all the time. We keep challenging everything all the time because that's how we can advance the industry. So we'll challenge absolutely everything. I invest a lot and a lot and a lot of cash in training uh, and technology. I used to be in IT, so bringing all that knowledge back into IT is quite important for us. We aim to be the intelligence center for trail and outdoor activities. So there's a lot of knowledge all around the place, but there's not a single point where you can actually find all that together. And having the intelligence center, uh, we, we do a lot of data processing and we have a, a project coming up with uh, AI to analyze all the trails and create data out of it. So everything that exists, what's the average grade, the classification, uh, the impact of building late season versus mid-summer, stuff like that, uh, the experience of the guide, the kind of terrain, the kind of soil, how it will impact the average speed and the average velocity, each machine. That's a lot of quite critical information, but also it goes back to risk management. It goes back to how we process the project, how we sell the project, how we ensure the guarantee over time. If that specific way of building trails is good, but not great, what can we do to expand on that? What can we do to bring to, to the next level? So uh, we, we test a lot of stuff. It doesn't always work, but when it does not, we are always back to it. With planning, because I think that's an area that it's a, it's a common theme that I bring up on this show all the time, that planning is super, super important. I just got off of another, I just had another conversation with a, with a former planner from IMBA, and we talked about planning throughout the whole entire conversation. What have you seen in terms of like just opportunities unlocked when proper plans are put forth in front of decision makers, potential funders, even people that are going to be end users of the trail? Planning used to be terrain-centric. So what's the maximum amount of trail you can actually put in a, on a piece of land? And when it used to be how much trail you can build, it was fine. But the market is not there anymore. And we took a different approach. So since a couple of years now, we, uh, we do everything with uh, design thinking. So everything is based on that. So it's UX design. And by starting the process with the user experience in mind, the approach is not the same. So even if the terrain could probably sustain more trails or a different thing, it might be worth to invest a bit more to create a more accessible trail because will appeal to more users uh, or to invest in a jump trail because that's what the market needs in that specific area. So the user experience will define that. It will also define the kind of destination, how it will work, and it will operate. You'll get out of that the uh, maintenance requirement, the risk management requirement, what kind of 
appeal you can get in the tourist market or the local market. So the the approach is not exactly the same as it used to be. It's actually quite the opposite, in fact. By starting everything with user experience, you get much more granularity with the kind of work you can do. Each trail in the plan will be tailored to a specific user base. So you can phase a project based on that. That's not something we used to do in the past. So each trail will have its own signature, will bring something different also. What used to be, we'll pump 50 kilometer of trail in that much space. It was nice. Taking that to that specific trail will be the loss leader, but it will bring that much visibility to the center. Now we're able to sell the same stuff. The other thing is when you have a much more refined process like that, you are able to lift way more funding because you will be able to have much more precise return on investment provision or a much more precise communication plan. So everything will be more refined. The planning process with that approach is um, much more inclusive also. So we'll get the community involved in that. It's not about pushing a plan on them. It's about getting them involved as early as possible. With that, you just you t- you dove into user experience and UX. And I know when we talked a couple of days ago, when we're going to go into the PTBA side of things now, but you talked about how you guys are that you're doing a strategic planning session with the PTBA. And I believe that's to kind of maybe guide the PTA in a, PTBA in a new direction or help it maybe maximize its potential. Would that be a correct statement? Um, the, the strategic retreat is actually in a in few weeks. So we'll see how it goes. But the goal is to actually bring the association to the next level. PTBA started a long time ago as the Western Trail Association. So a bunch of uh, horseback riders, mostly building trails for for themselves at the time. It was nice, but it evolved into more rider base. So what used to be just horseback or equine uh, equine trails, uh, they added at some point hiking trails, mountain bike trails, and other type of users. OHV is also part of that. In the last few years, uh, I will say that the mountain bike crew took a lot of space within the PTBA, but the rest still exists, and that's not to be underestimated also. PTBA is at the, is at the point where it's not a trade association, it's a member association, so it's not exactly the same thing. We aim to, to bring that to the next level by adding more professional services, more um, partnership, especially with American trails. We, we want to bring maybe a certification program in, in place. So there's stuff coming up that is brewing since a couple of years, but how can we bring a small, really specialized association like that, that is targeted really toward trail specific builders uh, and open that up to a little bit wider membership maybe. So that could be an option. Uh, we want to include more consultants, uh, more people doing trail work, trail design, uh, trail research, and get those involved. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because that's 
historically, like from the outside looking in, me being the outside, the PTBA has always been, I guess you could say builder-based and not necessarily planning and design and consultant-based, even though there are those members within the organization, they're kind of overshadowed by the actual builders or constructors themselves. Yeah. And there's probably five or six members that are just doing planning and design work. Uh, A few are doing both, but it's true. It's a fact that most of the users are builder only or builder mostly based. We are not such a big association, but it's still a stamp of approval or uh, recognition for the builders out there. So getting the membership is not such an easy process. There's still, you need to provide uh, reference letters, a sample project. You need to have completed a certain numbers of projects yourself. There is a specific qualification process and members are voted, uh, voted in also. So you just don't send a check and expect to become a member. So you need to be recognized by the membership. And that's one thing. But taking that and formalizing the membership process into something a bit more square will probably help the association grow over time also. So that's one thing. And it's really, I will say, elite association. But the goal is to get more builders involved in there by offering more services, more training, more, more resources all, all across the board. Would it be safe to say that sometimes when, you, when the bar is raised so high in terms of providing the work that you've done in the past and, and being voted on, that some potential members just don't even go down the route of the PTBA and just decide to go off on their own, which then in turn could fracture the whole professional trail building community, correct? Well, in a certain way, maybe. But the more you look at it, a lot more projects coming up these days, especially public bid, they have a a qualification process or not just the lowest bid available. It will be a, a pointing system. And you need to provide those skill set, methodology, reference letter, certification, stuff like that, to demonstrate that you can actually deliver the project in the end. So having the stamp of approval from the PTBA usually gives you extra points. So it's not blocking other contractors. It's just helping those in place that are actually recognized by that. If you actually join the PTBA, right now it's mostly seen as a training opportunity or networking opportunity. But more and more, what we aim to do is to provide more resources, more training. And because of that, the next level will be to maybe eventually put a requirement in the project or in the public contract that at least the project manager should be a PTBA member. So down the road, that's probably where it's going to be. Yeah. And I I mean, I personally think that's a good thing. You know, it's tough to vet potential contractors in any industry. You know, and you can get just a mixed bag of, of results if you don't really know who you're hiring and what they've done. And so I do, I do greatly appreciate that process and that it really helps us as end users get a better product and the communities that are funding it paying for what they asked to pay, to pay for. Yeah. And well, that, that brings 
other point because the the PTBA, the first part of the PTBA is the professional trade association and the professionalization of the industry over the last few years or last 20 years, maybe you've seen a major shift in the market and uh, how the trails are getting built. So what used to be volunteer driv- uh, driven most of the time became a lot more pro-built or pro-involved in some way, which led to better communities. And those communities are more involved now in volunteer work. And we've seen that around Quebec City, where it's stagnated for a while, then move on into a couple projects that were uh, given to public bid. So we won quite a few of those. So we built a bunch of trail around Quebec. And now in the last five or seven years, there's a couple of groups that organize themselves and they host trail days every single weekend with 100, 150 people over there building trails. It's been 15 years since we've seen that. It used to be the case. Uh, 15 years, 20 years ago, building trails, it was done with a shovel and rake. Now we have rogos, we have shapeshifters. Uh, there's specialized tools that we, we can use to build trails much more efficiently. And having the pro involved in some, some part of the process, maybe in design, which is really, really specialized, or in some grant work. So in some case, we just went do hybrid contracting. And we run the machine just to remove the stump and place big boulders, stuff like that. And the volunteers will finish the trail behind us. The sense of ownership is way stronger in that case. So the appropriation of the trail, uh, the trail belongs to the community in those days. They are just not pushing them. Different approach. Usually communities are way more interested in doing the, uh, the work this way. Let's change gears into pump tracks. Yeah. <laughs> That's an area that I haven't, we've talked about pump tracks on the podcast in terms of like what they are. And I think most people now know what they are. And, and when I say pump track, I think we're going to specifically um, dive into the asphalt side of pump tracks because there are also dirt pump tracks and other surfaces used. But your company specifically has been in the arena of planning and, and building of pump tracks that are that are paved and are made out of asphalt or hard surfaced. Let's talk about some of the things that you've learned through that process and some of the stuff that you try to design into stuff to make sure that the end product is a high quality end product for the user and the community. Yeah. Uh, we've been building pump tracks for eight or nine years now. So work on over 50 projects, something like that. Design quite a bit more. We've designed pump tracks for three, four countries so far. So all, or, all over the place. But we are specialized in the kind of work that needs to sustain winters. So the groundwork is not the same as what you could see in Texas or down south. Here, we have ground frost up to 9, 10 feet deep. So that's not something you're used to see in the States. So our approach is probably excessive for quite a few other places, but that's what works in our case. A lot of people think that a building contract is quite easy. It's a lot and lot and lot of maths. There's a lot of ratios involved, a lot of technical points, uh, 
proper soil compaction. So it, it goes back into civil engineering. It ties into landscaping. It ties into different kind of world, but that belongs to the construction industry. It's not a trail. It's a park amenity. So it's not the same thing at all. And it's a totally different skill set that you need to build a contract than building a trail. First thing is, if you don't have a proper foundation, it will not last. No matter where you are, you cannot expect to dump a couple truckloads of dirt and to have something that will last over time, especially with asphalt. We use crash stone that is tested in the lab, and we can pack each layer as we go, then it will sculpt out of that. Uh, you cannot expect a small compactor plate to pack down three feet of crash stone. It will never happen. We'll use larger equipment, bigger machines. And because of that, we also need to use specific attachments. So we'll use a tilt, rototilt, custom-made compactor plates, different kind of tools that you're not used to seeing the trails or in the wood. The type of asphalt is not the same. We, uh, we even have to take a special care about the kind of paint we use to, to mark the asphalt or put lines on the side. Because uh, in some situations, that specific paint can actually react with the tar in the asphalt and it will crack over time. We have a custom mix of asphalt that we use. And in the last year, we decided to move on from the construction of the contract only to design work. Uh, there's not a lot, uh, enough company that do contract design. So we're, we're now specialized just in design and planning for those kind of work. Uh, so we'll do the full construction level uh, details, the full 3D rendering, everything we, we need to get a project shovel ready for that. There's a couple of other builders out there that can actually build the contracts. But if we set the bar of what needs to be done and how it will be done, we'll ensure that the end product will be the highest quality possible and it will last over time. With the pump tracks, what have you seen in terms of like user experience once, they're com once they come into a community? Like where have you seen benefits? Like what is, you know, and, and I guess I'm asking this question aiming at more of the civic leader crowd that's used to putting in, say, a tennis court or ball field or other stuff that would be considered park amenities, kind of like how you descri described a pump track. You yeah. know, so how is that, how have those results been from an end user experience? It depends where you want to locate the pump track. If it's part of a trailhead amenity, it's not the same thing as something you put in a cool backyard. So the user experience will not be the same. The intended user is not the same. In a school backyard, you want to have something that will appeal to a wide range of users. You'll probably end up with skateboard on that, uh, scooters, and not just bike. So you might have a couple more surprising, more than you think. While if you build the same pump track near a trailhead, then you'll just have bikes or mostly bikes and maybe BMX and mountain bike. So two different kind of product. If we turn just to the public side of things, the, the park amenity, they are usually driven by the town, while the other one is driven by the, the bike club. So driven by a town, you need to sell the point that it will appeal to different kind of users. 
it will appeal, uh, it will add a really reduced amount of uh, maintenance requirement compared to a dirt pump track. The maintenance cost on, on the asphalt pump track will be about 5 to 10% of what the dirt pump track will be. And there's math behind that. We, we have stats over the last 50 uh, something contract we built and all the other contractor also. Reduce maintenance, that's one point. The other thing is it can be used year round. No matter the weather, it can be used. Even just after the rain, it can be used. Even in winter, we had a, the town just next to us as a pump track, and they shovel the track in winter and have an event mid midwinter with a barbecue and DJ. So it works. You cannot do that kind of stuff with a dirt pump track because it will wreck in no time, especially in freezing tough season. So in early in spring. Wider, uh, wider user base, wider audience, and the cost per user is actually quite good. It's more interesting than tennis field or uh, something like that. And there are some specific activities that are growing down, while the requirement for more activities, especially for younger kids, getting more active is on the rise. Uh, you want to take the, the, the young kids away from the screen, offer them something that appeals to them. And the pump track is that, is exactly that, especially if you put it right next to a skate park. So you can actually have both user group tied, tied together and present a single project. So having a part of a million project for the skate park, another one for the pump track, Build together and raise one million instead, and you'll have something much more interesting. You spoke of dirt a couple times. Are you still seeing dirt pump tracks being built like we did a few years ago at the same rate that we saw a few years ago? Or is pretty much all of your clients at or people you talk to transitioning toward that towards a hard surfaced pump track from a maintenance perspective because of all the reasons you just said? In the last year, we had a single request for a dirt contract and over 100 for an asphalt uh, one. So they still exist, but the maintenance requirements are so freaking high that it's usually not that interesting in the midterm or long term. We've worked with Soltac, we've worked with other kind of soul binder. Uh, we had hybrid project where just the, the curves were paved and the straight were dirt. Uh, so that's an interesting approach if you want to get the track to evolve over time, especially in the, well, that's something we work on in the uh, Beaumont National Center, which is a training facility just next to us. And that track is quite interesting. It, it changed virtually every year or two years, but the curves remain in place, just the straight will change. So the the rhythm section will change or uh, we'll add one more tabletop and change it. Our approach on pump tracks is from a BMX background. My lead designer used to race BMX at national level, Felix. And the, the way we view the pump track uh, is really targeted toward progression. So most of our team is trained under the PMBA. We have a partnership with Bike Skills. So our crew is trained to understand the requirement and the needs of coaching and really beginner riders. So that's something else. Uh, that's a way to make sure that 
the even advanced writer that we have in the crew and some use race at really high level. And they understand the needs of every single users out there. They just don't build for themselves. They build for the client and the user in the end. Yeah. And you just, when you, when we started talking about this, or when you started talking about the maintenance of the dirt pump track, the rail yard, yeah. which I'm sure you're familiar with and oh, yeah. Rogers <laughs> is like the first thing that, that popped into my head. And I know <laughs> some people might not like this, what I'm about to say, but it was affectionately known as the fail yard for a bunch of years. And then they paved it. Yeah. In terms of maintenance, that's probably one of the best scenario, one of the best uh, case study out there. Main issue was improper design for the kind of weather and soil that they had over there. It's too steep. Uh, water runoff was not properly managed. It could have been, have been fixed at the time, but the way it was designed initially was the best knowledge we had at that point. And it's fine. And we've learned from that. It's still overly steep. Everybody talks about airline being one of the best trail in the world. It's still considered overly steep. It's too steep to have low maintenance. So that's why it's getting rebuilt all the time. And they have equipment down there all the time. People think that a downhill trail should be steep. That's not the case. Some of the, belt, the, the best downhill trails are down to four, five, six percent grade. The kind of feature you put down those trails will be much more impactful than just the grade, the, the grade itself. The grade will manage a lot of the speed and the water uh, issue that you might face. 90% of the work we do building trails is managing water. And it, it all come back to that. Yeah, and this is a topic I didn't have, but since you said A-line, it jogged my brain for bike parks. Have you guys done some a bunch of bike park work as well in terms of building in, in your region? or built, you've, I mean, I, you've built in, what, eight countries now? Yeah. By bike park, you need to specify gravity park. I'll, I'll re-ask re the question because there, it gets, it, bike park does muddy the water because we could be talking about what we were just talking about in terms of the rail yard or an asphalt pump track and, and bike playground. Or we could talk about what I'm about to ask, which is a bike park that is a pay-to-play model with either some with some sort of uplift, whether it's a, a vehicle for a shuttle, a chairlift, or gravity specific, even if it doesn't have an uplift, maybe that there's a climbing or turn trail, you know, on the venue. And so we're we're talking gravity bike park. Yeah. So we work in uh, about almost a third of the um, the ski center across the province. And usually we, we arrive under the climate change approach. Most ski centers here are facing the issue where they have to diversify their operations and run four seasons instead of just winter. Uh, it's the same thing that happens everywhere. And expanding in summer operation is a big difference for them. Not all of them have chairlift running in summer for mountain bikes. Some do, just like Le Massif, Mont Saint-Anne, Ski Promo, and a couple others. Quite a few are enduro in some way, so you need to pedal up the hill, or you will have just shuttle at some point. And we've worked and designed some of the either gnarlier stuff or the more accessible stuff. So in uh, Le Massif, 
the only contractor that was crazy enough to do the green trail all the way to the bottom through the boulder field and, and all the crap that was at the base of the mountain, well, it was us. <laughs> and it was quite intense. We even had to heliport dirt to finish the tread because there was just nothing at all. Uh, so we've carried with the chopper over 200 tons of dirt. And that's not something you, you're used to see, especially not, not in, in the area, at least. So, yeah, we, we work quite a bit around gravity-fed trail. I will not say it's our main target, but that's what we want to do a lot. Uh, we, we are specialized around destina- creating destinations and changing a ski center in a four-season model. That's something we do a lot in the planning office right now. And turning those into field project or shovel-ready uh, project is what we are doing each and every single day right now. The bike park, Gravity Bike Park, to specify that. The Gravity Bike Park is a topic that I have really latched on to in terms of this, pod, this podcast and, and for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is we're starting to see them pop up in places that we wouldn't normally see them in the past, especially with the advent of, of e-bikes, right? But then yeah. more importantly, and this is where, this is where, at least more importantly to me, is that it's a model that if run properly is much more sustainable from a financial perspective, you know, where we're not relying on, and I, and I love volunteers. I've been a volunteer forever, but we're not, we're not relying on the volunteers for maintenance and you're actually employing staff to do the maintenance at that bike park. And so you, that I believe that pay to play experience is an avenue that hasn't been explored enough in our industry and is hopefully going to continue to get explored more for the reasons you talked about to help resorts become more diversified yeah. in their four season approach, but also so we can ride more. Yes, that's true. But the point is, especially in Quebec, when we started the trail association at the time, for insurance reason, we move on to the pay to play model quite fast. So in the province, there's probably about a dozen places where you can ride free. All the other ones, you have to pay. So the, the pay-to-play model is actually the normal around here. Uh, some destination employs up to 40, 50 employees just doing trail work, uh, guiding, coaching, and working in trails. So it's a business model also, especially in Quebec. It, it will generate quite a bit of job. Uh, it, it creates a lot of new opportunity for not just the trail operator, but all the other one around that. So the impact on the economy around trailhead for lodging, for food, uh, for bike shops, for everything is getting more and more important. And that's what getting us noticed also in the tourist ministry. So that's why we, we have numbers where we can actually push that. Uh, we know um, how many visitors per year we have because we have to sell pass. But those statistics are quite important for us. So the pay-to-play model generates a lot of job, generate better quality trail because those taking care of trails are actually trained for that. And volunteers, they are usually involved in their intended project or what they they will work on trail they want to ride usually admin stuff and really extreme stuff or really beginner stuff 
end up being given to the contractor that will take care of that. If you have to remove stuff by hand, it will take a couple hours. If you just have a main excavator, then you'll take care of it in two minutes and you're done. So the efficiency of work is not the same. So the pay-to-play model, allow for that. The other point is, now that we have numbers, we can actually justify grants. So we have a lot of new grants program that came up in the last few years. A couple millions per year, actually, that are given away by the province just to build and maintain trails. Oh, wow. You have, you have grants for maintenance even. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a topic I've explored. Not in every episode, but it's a, it's a topic that I think gets missed a lot just generally in life. Like nobody wants to, everybody wants the new, you know, like in the, in the show that just came out this week, everybody, the, the guest who talked about, everybody wants the new building, but no one wants to cut the grass and take out the garbage. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Have you had any pushback from the public in terms of like when you transition to the pay to play model? Because I've said it a bunch of times, like mountain biking, while we want it, to, I mean, I, we all want it to be inclusive in terms of getting everybody involved. But at the same time, we know there's a fairly high number of mountain bikers that will spend a lot of money on a mountain bike, you know, with Kashima coated this and whatever that and electric shifting. And, but then they complain about having to pay to ride it somewhere. If you're able to pay 10 grand for an e-bike or something like that, putting a couple bucks more to access a really properly maintained trail network with all the amenities, with the parking lot, with the signage, with bike showers, uh, everything, well, it's probably worth it because the overall experience for a user is not the same. Uh, it's not the backcountry experience. The user is actually handled and you have a rental center, you have everything in the, at the same place. And people are used to that level of service now. So that come with the pay-to-play model. The free access are usually, the, the few we have in the province, they are usually funded by a town or a county. And we have a few of those. And that's usually where initiation will take place or will bring the young kids. But the difference is when you go to a trail destination that has that kind of features, they are usually more interesting, more advanced. Uh, you'll have a skills park, you'll have a pump track, you'll have everything that creates a much more interesting experience. So you'll want to return because of that. It's not just a trail network that is there. So there is a, a living community around that. So that's the difference between going to saint de Bonnet every single Wednesday when there's 200 cars in the parking lot and going to the small trail network outside where there's probably five cars. The, 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 the community feeling is not the same. So you, you belong to a group. You can actually ride with people at your own level. So a different model, different approach, and they can actually live together quite easily. It took a little bit of time when we started, but because it was pushed quite early in the process, about almost 20 years ago, it evolved naturally and it, it got into the bike culture here. Even move a, a little bit outside the province now. So even if you go to Kingdom Trail, you expect to pay because you have 
a lot to ride. And there's a bunch of free place to ride in Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine. And that's awesome. If you go to a ski resort where you have a lift access, you expect to pay. So they, they can both live together. Yeah. And I think, you know, some people get confused with the ski resort thing because they believe they're paying for that lift access. But the reality is you're actually paying for the full experience, not just the lift. Yeah. People underestimate the amount of insurance uh, cost. The insurance, especially in Canada right now, is a big issue. So all the outdoor activities are covered by a single insurer in, in the country, by BFL. Uh, Lloyds of London actually moved out of the market about a year or two ago. So right now we're facing an issue where there's a single player doing insurance for outdoors activities. They have the monopoly on the market, so they can put the price they want. So in the last year, a small nonprofit network that used to pay three to five thousand a year, their general li- liability went up to twenty, thirty thousand a year. And they had to pay upfront because it's specialized insurance. And if you don't pay, you cannot open the, the network. So that's a big, big deal. That's a big issue. And we it's not just mountain bike, it's all the outdoors activities. So hiking, uh kayaking, stuff like that. Everybody's under the same umbrella right now. So and even ski resort are about to face the same issue because it's the same insurer in the back end. As an industry, we had to bring that to the government and we are working right now. We are on the table to see what we can do for that. Professionalization of the activity of the sport of everything is helping a lot. We are working right now with Bill Quebec with a certification program, uh, with a new classification guide getting more refined guidelines on how to build trails, how to maintain them. It will help ensure that we are actually able to ensure trails, which is a big, big, big nightmare right now. As a contractor, my insurance went up almost 70% this year. So <laughs> virtually double the amount. It's a bit insane. So the market is not always easy. Yeah, it's, and we're, you know, as... The whole world is talking about inflation right now. It's it's real, you know. Well, one of the issues behind that is that the the general public perception is still a lot uh, based toward the Red Bull image. So, if you're used to see in the media that mountain biking is only about dropping forty feet stop, uh, drops and stuff like that, that's less than one percent of what riders can actually do on a bike. Most of the, the user base is not doing the kind of stuff. They, they want to ride a smooth trail in the wood, really wide, clean, uh, with the kids on a Sunday afternoon. So reality of what's actually happening in the field and what's vehicled by the media is a big, big, big nightmare because the perception in the public is not right. So working to change that image, it's something that the PTBA is working on, but the, the industry as a whole has to work with. Well, and you'd think it'd be, and I, you know, obviously I'm speaking from a, I'm a, from a different country, so I have a different perspective, but it would also be in the best interest of the government to try to, you know, control costs somewhat because 
obviously it impacts the tourism and everything else that you're looking to get for benefits out of having these amenities. Mm -hmm. Yes. The issue is that we don't have a lot of, it's a new sport and it's evolving quite fast. So there's not a lot of history behind that. And because it's moving so fast, the stats from 10 years ago are not good anymore. So it's really hard to have numbers. And that's the main issue. So maybe down the road, we'll have something that will be recurrent and come back every single year and we'll have proper numbers to, to show up. It's still a dream. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, since you, we've kind of talked about you know, the way trails have evolved, or the, not trails, the way the industry has evolved, you know, what do you have in, in your mind that could be potentially the future of, of trails from a planning, construction, planning, design, and construction side of things? Trick question. <laughs> Um, well, just like what you'd like to see, and I guess is it, none of us can actually tell the future. If we could, we'd probably no. not be here right now. Of course, no. Um, if the user can actually be put in the center of everything, then we will have much more interesting experience all over the place. And that's not always the case. So right now, a lot of builders, either volunteer or even some semi-pro, are building for themselves. They're not building for the user. So once we can actually reach that point, it will be really interesting because we will know at that point that the market is mature enough to be uh, a real offering for the general public. Right now, it's still a little bit elite. So reaching that general public, we still have some work to do. We need to standardize the way we market and sell mountain bike. So either signage or general trail classification, that's also a big deal. So if you travel one place to the other, it's not always the same experience. And I don't want to see the same thing all over the place, but a green trail in one place should be a green trail virtually anywhere with some change, but green should be easy trail, accessible trail, no matter where you are. An advanced trail should be advanced no matter where you are. So that's a, a really big point right now. And it doesn't have to be area specific or it, it can change, it can still evolve over time and that's fine. But there's still a baseline to, to follow up and Imba did a great work at the time because it evolved a lot in the last 20, 25 years. We're at the point where that classification needs to evolve a little bit and be refined a bit more. So maybe that's something we'd like to see uh, in, the near, uh, in the near future. The way contracts are handled is a big deal. The way the certification and co-location process of the contractor is something that I'd like to see change also. Everybody with a shovel can claim to be a builder. That doesn't mean you can actually build a trail or know what you can do. So there's a lot we, we can move on. The, the key point behind that is uh, building trails about passion. So if you're not a passionate individual, it, it will be really hard to actually channel that in the, the kind of product you create. So the best, actually the best machine operator out there are usually really advanced writers. They can actually see what they can, what, what they want to do. Most good writers are, have a really, really good proprioception. So they, they are aware they are in a space. 
and the machine will become an extension of, of themselves. It's actually easier to coach a mountain biker to run a machine than to coach a machine operator to ride a bike. So the learning curve is not the same. And the end product, by having a, a rider to shape a berm or a jump, you already know what it needs to look like or the shape or the angle and everything. And after that, it's just a matter of getting the right tool, either a shovel or a mini axe. Mini axe is actually just a bigger shovel. <laughs> so it, it will take some time and you need to learn from the base. So even all my crew, they all start through with a rogue and a break in, the, in their hand and move on. Well, Jerome, with that, do you have any closing comments or words of wisdom that you want to leave with the listener? and? Thank yous that you'd like to shout out to anybody that have helped you get to where you are today. Ah, <laughs> right on. Um, there's a lot of people that actually help uh, over time. And um, the, the, the founding crew of the Trail Association at the time, David Lozon, Hervé Fricard, Eric Leonard, which led to the employment of Francis Tetro that became the project the mountain bike project manager at the Quebec at the time and loop around and became one of my employees now. Shout out to my kids to always be there with me, to Raxan, my girlfriend, all the team, all the crew here in the office that without whom I will not be able to do what I do today. Um, my coach, because I'm back in school now, I'm, I'm doing the uh, business school to help bring myself to where the business should be. Shout out to a bunch of clients, but especially Fred Aslan at Valais-Bordinard, that was probably one of the first guys that believed in me at the time and uh, gave me my first few opportunities uh, also. If you want to ride something else and discover a lot of land, bring your bike to Quebec. There's so much more to explore. Yeah, there's a lot of good good coverage of Quebec in the in the Quebec City region and just eastern Canada out on, you know, Pink Bike or YouTube or wherever you consume your your mountain bike media and I know I've been just fascinated with all the all the different riding you have up there. Um it's it's been a getting up to the northeast part of of the U.S. and then, you know, I guess we'd call it the Southeast part of Canada, <laughs> even though it doesn't seem South at all, has been something that, you know, has always intrigued me. So I really appreciate you reaching out and, and coming on the show and taking time out of your day because as, as we've learned with all of our guests that everybody's busy. And so I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. Our next episode will feature the legendary Dirt Sculpt Dave. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating or review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, you can check out the partnerships and affiliate links at the Trail Effect website, www.traileffect.com, where you will find the links for Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, 
and Trail One components. By using the affiliate links found at www.trailfectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which helps keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.